Okay, suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, or a thief, or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time of judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to the faithful Creator and continue to do good to elders and young men. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, as one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To be, to him be the power and the glory forever and ever. With the help of Silas, of course, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would help us as we come to the end of the study. Things to be cemented in our own hearts and minds and we take away from this weekend those things that are, will be important for us as we continue to build and to construct not only in terms of our own individual lives, but in the lives of the church into which you call us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> it is very interesting how people have wrong expectations of what it means to be a Christian. And it's quite fascinating when Jesus was uh, recruiting disciples and the crowd that he made it very clear what were the conditions upon which people would follow him. He laid them down and he also gave very clear reasons as to why people would be foolish not to follow him. And it is 
sometimes surprising how it is that people have very wrong expectations about being a Christian. I remember I had a relative one time who said, if God does this to me, I'll never talk to him again. And her view was that God was simply there and that he had to do what she wanted. She was rather a self-willed lady, I have to say, in terms of who she was. It's also interesting in Singapore at times that if a Christian person, say a student, failed their exam at the university, they'd stop being a Christian. So their expectation that in being a Christian, it meant that God was going to minimise your bad luck and maximise your good luck, and he was here for you. That, that undergirded a very serious aspect of Chinese religious thinking. And so one had to take that into account uh, when one was sort of, when a person might becoming a Christian to realise that God is not here for us. But we are here for his kingdom. And that's why he said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must cease being this pig at the centre of your world where everything's about moi. And you must now deny yourself, take up the cross, look at life in terms of reality, of life and death. It's life that's different from that perspective. And follow me. And he gives reasons why. What will a prophet a man who became the whole world? All those sorts of issues, what a man's life consists of. So it's interesting that Jesus made it very clear that in becoming a Christian, this was not a first class uh, passenger seat to heaven. But there were things involved in becoming a Christian. And one was to be times of suffering. And so Peter here wants to make it very clear that the Christian has to keep on going and not be surprised when tough times come. And the fiery trials he's thinking about would indeed would be some 30 years perhaps down. Obviously things are already becoming unhappy times. If you look previously at, at what happened with the Emperor Pliny. Uh, and so this is not something that, that's strange. It's interesting that Christ himself spoke of the business of the sufferings that Christians would experience. And he wasn't promising, as it were, his smooth, uh, as it were, magic path to heaven. And so don't be surprised, he says, if this comes upon you. That's the first thing he wants to give them, this warning. The second thing, <clears throat> he wants to tell them how to handle it. And that comes to us in verse 12, verse, uh, verse 13. But rejoice, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Because even suffering has a future to it. And we, in the opening part, I didn't touch on this, but in the opening part of 1 Peter, that even the difficult times will be found to the glory and honour of Christ when he comes. So even the bad times have some future to them. So he rather explicates this explaining that you rejoice because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. His sufferings brought immeasurable benefit. And the fact that you have to suffer for his name is not something that is, uh, is, is a deficit situation at all. What is more, it has an ultimate future for it because we'll look back in heaven and we'll be able to rejoice even at the tough times that occur. The times of suffering and discrimination, when the first Christian person suffers that, we'll see that God weaves that all into his sort of great purpose. Because we have a God who works with all things for good but it's not always for our good. 
doesn't have to be seen to be immediately beneficial to us. Because God has a way of, as it were, spinning off things that happen to us that actually prove to be a great blessing to other people. So there are some quite misunderstandings. They were there in the first century. And if you're insulted for the name of Christ, what does Peter say there? He says, we are blessed. Because the spirit of God and the spirit of glory, sorry, the spirit, spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. So if people insult you for the fact that you're a Christian, then in the ancient world to be insulted was to lose face. It was that you were humiliated in the public domain. And your persona, who you are, it, it absolutely disintegrates. Because a bit like in, say, the Chinese culture and other cultures, you have this idea of face. And if you are insulted in public, this is sort of a virtue, the total dim, the diminishing of you as a person. You feel all you can stand in is your angles because the rest has been cut down. So this whole business of feeling insulted in the ancient world, if people wanted to humiliate you, they would choose a time and a public place and they would totally demolish you. From then on, you felt you had to sort of be like a dingo scuffed around the back streets and not to be seen again, because you've lost, as it were, you've lost face of your persona. But now you are blessed, he says, if you're insulted for that name. You are not, you are not diminished, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because people know that that is something genuine. They've come to see that you are a Christian. That's a sign that God's Spirit is upon your life. Transformations occurred, and people realize there's something different about this person compared with all the other guys who are eating and drinking and all the sorts of things that they have not to be doing on the focus of the, in terms of the ancient world. <coughs> so that's part of the challenge that these are tough times, but they can be good times. And therefore, we can rejoice when this happens to us, not act as were in a cultural way. He's also concerned that a person, that none of you suffer because you've done the wrong thing, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory to God in that name. You see, the word Christian, Christianus, was a term of derision in the first century. <clears throat> it wasn't invented by the Jews. It wasn't invented by the Christians. It actually was invented by the Roman authorities in, uh, in uh, Syrian Antioch. That's where they were first called Christianos. And, and that is a derivative, when you put it into Latin, which is a sign of derision. So it's not, as it were, a proud term that people had in the first century. And that's why if a person suffers because they are a Christianos, because what they believe is absolutely stupid. And we get a good example of that in the catacombs of Rome, where there is, I think I may have mentioned this the last time I was there, but there is this picture of a cross with a man on it but the head of an ass. And in the Praetorium Guard, that's what they think of the Christian message, an ass of an idea. And that's what this young... That's what they say about Alexa Menmon. That's the young man. Alexa Menmon worships his God. <coughs> and Alexa Menmon is as, is as mad as his God. He's an ass. Just like this business of this whole idea 
that the death of Christ on the cross, that this was uh, sheer folly, as Paul is to say, it's foolishness as far as the, the world was concerned. And so the whole idea of being called a Christianos, a Christian, was not a sign of pride in that sense, but it was a sign of derision. You know, you're a hundred times more stupid than you look to believe that sort of fairy story. That was the attitude <coughs> that people took in the first century. That even if they think that you are as stupid as you look, we have no cause to be ashamed. <coughs> because we recognize, as been said before, that Christ also suffered for our sins. And we are liberated people. We're not people who are, as it were, chained in our lives to the past. And we are irrevocably the sum total of all our dysfunctions and all the guilt of things there. We're not people, as it were, who are carrying an intolerable burden the older we get because our memory is able to remember more things that we've done wrong. No, we have been people who have been liberated. And if people recognize who we are and say that we're Christians, even though they may spit the name, we can glorify God. Because this is what Alexa Menmon wrote next to my love. <coughs> he just puts the word Alexa Menmon Christus. Alexa Menmon is faithful. I'm sticking to it, I believe it. You may think it's a massive idea, but I know it's true. And I, this is my, this is what I'm, this is my confidence. And I love that the business of another hand is written there and repeating and that's the name of the soul. And so he was not ashamed <clears throat> that he could glorify God in that because he knew it was true. And this was a rescue operation founded from heaven itself. And so he can rejoice and rather than feel that in suffering, because of the term of derision. And uh, we perhaps can't quite enter totally into that sort of psyche. I certainly not think we're a group in uh, of this whole business of <coughs> being named and shamed <coughs> and have been totally, as it were, demolished in a culture where face means so much. Those from Chinese and Asian backgrounds will perhaps understand this. I think we certainly don't resonate much more with this whole question. <coughs> and the concern is that <coughs> in what may be happening, Paul is saying, sorry, Peter is saying, it's now time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And what we see happening in the early church, the church may grow and develop, but there are situations in which there is judgment on the part of God. Now, all of God's judgment is remedial for his children. That's important for us to understand. And that's said to us by Paul, that, that God's judgment is remedial, so that we may not be condemned of the world. But there is a remedial judgment going on in terms of the church. We see that in the book of the Revelation. There are churches there, and there is, as it were, there's, Christ is sending his word to those seven churches, and they are words of correction and of judgment. We know that in, in, in the Corinthian church, there are some people who have experiencing the disciplining hand of God upon their lives because of the way they lived. But all of God's discipline of his children is remedial, unlike sometimes the way we bring our children. <coughs> Not always remedial, we 
and he that gives himself defense and will leave his property. <clears throat> and now there are whole other reasons why it is that we sort of handle the children's situation. But, <clears throat> word of testimony. Who's, whose son is he? <laughs> <coughs> He's a sinner, you know, because she goes like this and he goes like that. <laughs> the woman whom you gave me. Okay. <laughs> he's a naughty boy. Okay, he's a naughty boy. <clears throat> and and that's important for our children. That's certainly how God is in terms of this. And this is an assessment. And so there's a concern. As Peter writes this letter, if the church gets it right, if the church listens to this message, which is an urgent message, but the church, as it were, to sort of get rid of some of this, this sinful flab and to get back in good condition so that it can be beneficial. And this is why it says, Therefore, in verse 19, that those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. How? By doing good. Now, the text is clear in the Greek. It means by doing good. And that is, remember, is the theme of 1 Peter. The theme of the importance of Christians to be those who are who are actually bringing a benefit, and this is how we even in those who suffer. What do you keep on doing? You just keep on doing good, because that's the nature of God. Who wakes up every morning, he thinks about what good he can do, what blessings he can send on the earth. The sun was no different. The followers are going to be no different either. And so here is this challenge of how it is that tough times can be good times. And even when it is tough, you just keep on doing those things that will be a blessing to others. And you don't go around saying, poor old me. An Englishman told me that's what the word poms would call. You know, we call English people poms. Well, he said, that means poor old me. <clears throat> and I thought, well, if that's the case, that explains why you lost the empire. Okay, <clears throat> your wife's not English, is she? Oh, that's thanks a great relief. I thought another another member of the family might be just walking out <coughs> in in protest. Okay, right. I don't believe that, but that's what an English person told me, so I can repeat it with joy, but I can still repeat it actually in that particular context. So this is what I sort of find interesting that when Peter is talking about the two ways to live in chapter two, about the business of self-fulfillment which is sinful. The business about doing good. And then all throughout this letter there is the reminder that the way the Christian continues to function, the way the Christian even responds in adverse circumstances is with the doing of good. And this is how we entrust our souls and know that one day what we want to hear is those words said that we have been good and faithful servants. And we were here Others were not here for us, we were here for them. And that's what a servant is involved in. And that's what is the calling of a Christian life. So Peter wants to prepare. And it's wonderful in many ways the way in which God always prepares us for what may be the next step for the country. Seen by Peter, yes, there is this sense of the Christian faith is, is, is somehow becoming a bit prickly for other people. Posing some sort of challenge. People are beginning to throw insults at how it is that they would just keep on doing 
doing those things that are a blessing to others. And that's how you commit yourself, even in the face of suffering, to God's will. You entrust yourselves to a faithful creator. Because God knows. <clears throat> and when we stand in eternity, we'll know that so enduring and pressing on is worthwhile. Now there's the call in terms of the flock of God. It's interesting how the focus for Peter is not on inside the church, but his primary focus, the focus up to this point is the business about how the Christian relates to the world and those sorts of things. So this is not a gated community approach to the church, <clears throat> or this little group that's a holy hut, but it's something that has a great sense of openness to the, to the world in which people live. And here is the exhortation to those who are elders. And Peter is not writing as the apostle of those things, but he's writing to them as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And when we come to 2 Peter, we know that Peter was there. He heard the voice from heaven. He heard God say, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You guys there, listen to him. <clears throat> and that's the testimony Peter can bear witness to. Uh, in the second, in his second letter, which is an important, very important letter for us to, and for readers, as it then raises sort of part two of the whole sequel of what he's writing. And he talks about the fact that the task of the of, of the elders. Therefore, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, and exercise oversight, not because you have to, but because you see it's a privilege, not because there's money. And even in the first century, Peter Paul talks about those who are peddling God's word for profit. This is not the reason it's done. It's done because it needs to be done, but to be done eagerly. And not, as it were, dominating those in your charge, but to be a paradigm, just as Christ himself is the paradigm of the pattern that we're meant to follow. So it is, this is how the elders are to operate. Remember when I learned to write, you have a copy book with copper plate letting on the top. And underneath you have to learn to copy that. And that's what is being spoken of here as, as a paradigm to the flock, as an example. That's why sometimes I hear people talking about ruling elders and we should be talking about those who are serving elders, those who are there for the benefit. Uh, and it's not a case of, uh, as it were, being the person who bosses all the others. And if you do this, the great, when the great shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. You see, in the ancient world, in the Olympic and the Isthmian Games, the, the crown you had was made of celery. And you walk around looking like a right royal Charlie the next day with this crown of celery on your head. <clears throat> and that was you were crowned with it. You thought you were the handsome of these knees. But then, you know, after a few days, all you could do is either throw it out or eat it, and it's gone. It's a fading crown. <clears throat> but here is the contrast with this crown that is an unfading crown of glory. And likewise, you who are younger, you are to respect those who are older. <clears throat> I always valued my time in Singapore because it taught me the importance of valuing those who had experience. We live in a day and generation where people sometimes are very disrespectful to the experience of old people. 
And there's the wisdom of experience and the wisdom of people who are older. Of course, there's sometimes the foolishness of people who are older. But Peter is concerned that those people who have been through life, they have something to teach us. And that, to me, was of a great help as I was growing and developing as a person. And that's why the older women had to help the younger women through the marriage experience. Because marriage is not easy. So it is the older the older people are to be a help and encouragement for those who are younger. And we live in an age which despises uh, despises the next the generation comes. And we mustn't replicate that in the church context. We must be sort of very careful to recognise that those people who are younger are to recognise the importance of experience. Uh, you can't replace experience in the hands of your, in, in the mind and life of a godly person. And clothe yourself, he says, all of you with humility towards one another. It's very interesting when we see other people as our competitors. Other people we've got to beat. That's only for the rats. Only rats run black places, but Christians shouldn't do that sort of thing. And therefore our relationship with one another. And I just rejoice in the fact that I learn things from young people. I learn things from my brothers and sisters. Some they see things that I haven't. Sometimes they contribute. And therefore the Christian church is unlike anything else. The secular ecclesia was one of competition where you were trying to get to the top. And you were working out, well, I'm more important than he is. I've got sort of my, my status gives me these privileges. I come from this family. Just look at my name. All those sorts of things. And so there wasn't humility, there was pride. But in the Christian situation we are told that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Because God resists the proud, even in the church. When God resists someone, I don't think it's going to be that he comes off second best in terms of the flash. You're hitting yourself against an iron wall. You're going to break your nose and do other things like that. But God gives grace to the heart. The person who recognises, I don't have all the answers, I don't have everything, and I just sort of stand as a needy person every day, needing God's grace and power to help me. And therefore we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time God will exhort us. And here are the business about focusing on true grace by living the life we're meant to live. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We really are just a very small ant, minuscule, under this great hand of God. We need to recognize where we are. And God in due course will exalt and he will honor his people. We're to cast all our cares upon him because God knows and God cares and nothing this truth can be. Okay? God knows our anxieties. And the word anxiety came from the concept of the ancient world. It was a feeling people had when the gods had departed from the city and people were by themselves. That was called anxiety. That you were on your own, you had nothing, and life was falling apart, and maybe the enemy would come and sack the city. But we're told that we're to cast all our cares upon him, because this God never leaves his people. He stands with us throughout the whole of the journey of life. And therefore, he cares for us. We are to be people who are serious. We're to be watchful because we've got a predator that's roaring around that wants to devour us. 
and we ourselves have to resist because the evil one is a person, not an idea. And we need to know that, that we need to stand firm in our faith knowing the same kind of suffering that is being experienced by other Christians, the experience that we ourselves are having. See, this day in some parts of the world there are Christians who are suffering because they are Christians. Some are losing their homes, some have lost their lives, and this is happening, you get, you get contact with this information happening right throughout the world. So if something happens to us, it's not just poor old me, don't turn into a pom. <clears throat> There's lots of other people who experience exactly the same sorts of things. And after, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. It will be an unhinging experience, but he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish. So you see, we are in safe hands. We have nothing to fear. We are being cared for, and even if tough times come, the reality is that God has is more than adequately provided for all our needs in that particular context. And so we need fear no evil. That's why the writer of the psalm would say, fear is no evil. God is with his people. And he indeed will, will strengthen and, and he will prepare us, he will comfort us in the things that may be on the horizon. So even if tough times come, Tough times can be good times. They're not sad times. They're strengthening times. They do things to us, which actually is a source of enormous benefit. Now we come to the end. <clears throat> Who is the, the shorthand taker? Is none more than Silvanus. We come back to this business. Why did Peter write? It was a twofold thing he was wanting to do. One is, he was wanting to exhort. And that's why his words of exhortation come out a number of places. I beseech you, I exhort you. That sort of terminology is used in the letter. And so it's a letter of exhortation to Christians. You know, move on. There needs to be some changes. But you need, as it were, to move forward in terms of your own Christian life. And also, it is a letter that is declaratory. It's not just ethical but it's also declaring certain important things. <clears throat> and it's what is declaring to us not the grace of God, but the true grace of God, because there is a counterfeit product that's grown up alongside. And Peter's aware of it, Paul is aware of it, <clears throat> and you look at the writers in the New Testament, they are aware that just as wheat has grown up, weeds have grown up beside it. And, and therefore, wheat and weeds in the early stage of the ancient world, you couldn't distinguish between the two well as the starting point. But these two things have actually grown. And the grace of God is not simply that this is my, this is my swipe card ticket to heaven. And therefore, as long as I remember to put it in my back pocket when I go out, everything's okay, and I can have my best life now, and I can enjoy things, and I can have everything I want. <clears throat> I won't always have everything I need, but I'll have everything I want, because life's about what I want. And we need to remember that the time in which Peter is writing, 
is a time of unprecedented prosperity in the Roman East, in which the Roman businessmen, the international trade in effect that was going on, the banking system, the insurance, all those things, and it was a time of remarkable development and growth and prosperity. And that's why it was called the Roman Feast. It brought all these wonderful things to us. And so it was very easy for Christians just to simply add the doctrine of grace to the age of prosperity. And you can see when that sort of thing happened that the, the, the riches and the prosperity have seduced Christian people into thinking that life does consist in the abundance of the things I possess. It's sometimes fascinating when you hear Christians getting together and talking, what they talk about. And I must say it's decreasing, but it's very interesting sometimes when just people talk about all the things that they have. And in many ways are quietly boasting. But when we come together, that's not the purpose of gathering. And here are people, some of whom have lost the plot. Now I know that in Queensland we've suffered from the business of what I see the business of prosperity and it's had effect on Christian people. And we just need to be on our guard. Yes, there may be times in which God blesses us with material blessing, for which we can thank him and realise the way we, we can thank God sometimes by sharing our resources and other things with other people. But if God does bless us, it's not a sign of our success simply a sign of his goodness to us. But you can see how easy the seduction comes in, where the grace of God is purely something that is about something future, and now I've got it, I don't have to think anything more about how I live in the present time. But that's not the true grace of God. And Peter's command is, you must stand firm in the true grace of God. As I said at the beginning, just as Romans is about the obedience of faith, not faith, for us. It's about the obedience that flows from there. So it is, as Peter writes about the true grace of God, is not just simply this amazing thing that God has done for us that's brought us such benefits, but the true grace of God in which we are to stand firm is the grace of God which talks about the question of the other focus as to how we live now. That's a sign of what is the true grace of God. And therefore, it is about the obedience of faith, the way that that makes a big difference to the way in which we 